This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we invite David Presley and Mecca Williams to talk about how NetApp is modernizing their development and QA. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio today here with Andrew Sullivan. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Mr. Parisi. So, um, glad for you to join us. Thank you. You as well. We're going to talk about some things that are very near and dear to your heart and really just your day job. That's because I don't trust you with anything else. Beards? Beards, yes, but your day job, because I don't trust you with anything else. <laughs> Fair enough. We're going to talk some DevOps, and right. we're going to talk development in general. Who better to do that with than actual real-life testers and developers? I um, couldn't agree more. So we've brought them in. We, we've dragged them away from their dark cubes. Um, we unchained them. What's that joke about mushrooms, right? Keep uh, them in the dark know. and throw... Never mind. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that. But... um. So today we brought in uh, two of NetApp's finest and brightest. Uh, we brought in Mecca Williams. Hi, Mecca. Hello. Hi. So Mecca, if you could tell everyone in the audience what you do here at NetApp, and if they want to find you on social media, how to find you. Sure. I um, I am currently a senior engineer in the Aero team. I don't know if you guys know we have an Aero team, but that stands for Automation and Engineering Operations. And um, we kind of take care of all the automation and test needs of everybody. So um, I was formerly a member of the San Interoperability team, too. You still so. are. <laughs> you could never leave. That is true. Um, and I can be reached on LinkedIn. My full name is Mecca Williams. You can find me there. It's M-E-K-K-A. That is correct. Yeah. Not like Mecca, like a robot. And it's not Mika. It's Mecca. Okay, Mika. Um, so uh, also in the studio with us today, uh, someone that used to live in my neighborhood, but I moved. Uh, David Presley, hi. Tell us what you do at NetApp and how to find you. Well, usually I'm chasing people like you out of my neighborhood. Yeah, but, we are kind of shifty and shady. Yeah. Uh, I'm an automation lead in a QA group, specifically a, a networking QA group. I've been here a long time. Originally, I came from a SAN QA group. Um, was an automation lead there as well. Um, have been on groups related to Arrow, or Arrow owns a lot of my work and has to fix it, I think, for to keep it current. Okay. What is it with you and inviting people in your neighborhood? I just, that's the only people I know. <laughs> I, the, only, the only person I know in my neighborhood is Troy. These are the people in my neighborhood. So he's running out of people in our neighborhood, so he had to move. Apparently. I did. I had to find new people. <laughs> people in my previous neighborhood, worthless. Sorry, David. Um, so, uh... I don't know how to start this. I mean, do we do chicken and egg, like QA or testing? Which comes first here? They're interrelated. Yeah. I know. It's um, tough. What do we, Andrew, you're the tiebreaker. Testing. Testing first. All right. So the idea behind this podcast is that a lot of companies are finding the same challenges when they're trying to evolve and change the way they develop and do their work. Um, NetApp is not alone in that. And I thought to, to better illustrate that is to talk to people that actually do this day to day. So let's talk about testing and how uh, the QA team does their testing, does their automation, and how they've streamlined that. Uh, and the reason why they needed to streamline that is for the six-month cadence. So, David, let's start with that. Like, right. Tell me about the six-month cadence and how that has created new challenges for your team. 
So once upon a time, our release cycle was more or less 18 months, right? We would, so we would have that entire release cycle to, you know, dev and, and test. Uh, a lot of times dev would do a lot of the upfront work, throw it over the wall to us. We would have testing cycles, you know, multiple testing cycles, oftentimes after dev was done with most of their work. Um, we can't do that now, right? When you're, when we've got a six month cycle, everything's got to be um, done in parallel. We have, we engage with, with dev much sooner. We automate everything that we can. We shift everything that we can into CITs, continuous integration tests, um, these run literally every three hours or every eight hours, depending on which tier you're in. Um, I think that eight hours, correct. But we, we have gone from testing, you know, kind of slowly and methodically to testing constantly. Everything is run all the time. Right now, when you automate a test, the expectation is that it will go in into a CIT. Uh, and you need to you need to test accordingly, right? Most almost every CIT is done on a virtual uh, a vSIM or a virtual hardware. It's not necessarily done on actual hardware. So you've got to be careful about how you automate to make sure you don't, you know, you you can't have two petabytes of data being <laughs> moved around in a in a virtual environment. Uh, th things like that. You can't. You got to make sure you scale both in in sizing and time, number of ports, things like that. Uh, so how you automate, what you automate, how quickly you do it, and how it gets executed is all changed um, and, and is all getting more precise because of the six-month cadence. Would you find that having to change this method of development and you know, having it happen at the same time and having to interact more with the developers is improving the quality of the code, or is it about the same? I think, of it, I think it will cause improvements. Um, it's not that we didn't used to talk with development. It's more about when we used to talk with development. I think right now, QA is more involved earlier. Uh, we're reading functional spec. We've got more more dates to meet, right? You, dates used to be few and far between. Now they're much sooner and there's more of them. So in order to meet, you know, chunk one deadline, we've got to go talk to talk to the dev and see what's available when and how to turn certain things on that, that maybe aren't on in the general product. Uh, so that you can go go test them as early as possible and test whichever parts of a feature become available. We want to test them as they become become available. So uh, I want to do a little bit of going back to the basics because I think it's important to remember nothing against our audience, but we're not developers, right? right? Generally speaking, it's it's a lot of I, I've done measures. HTML. <laughs> Good work, but but I have you done think. development? <laughs> so uh, HTML. <laughs> Well, I think one thing that's important to understand is what exactly are we testing, right? We hear about the right. the you know the, the application development process, right? right? We hear about these, you know, if you're familiar with the DevOps uh, uh, methodology or documentation, right? There's five different steps or eight, depending on where you're looking, right? And all these right. other things. So I think it's important to understand what is a test? What are we testing? What is the, the goal of that? So when you say what do we test... Um, it's it's really a, almost a hard question to answer in that we not only do we test everything within ONTAP and other operating systems that we support, but it's it's how and when we test it. We've got you know developers doing unit testing, we've got integration testing, we've got system testing, feature testing, new feature testing, regression testing. We we have to for each six month cadence we have to test everything that we possibly can, uh, and and new stuff and old stuff. So it, 
you know, when you say what do we test, um, it, everything from, from ONTAP to host operating systems that, that connect to ONTAP and ways we connect with it, we connectivity with switches. So I, I, I want to point out that there's different, as you said, right, there's different types of tests. So right. ranging from function testing, right, of I'm a developer, I just implemented, you know, some new fantastical, awesome feature inside of ONTAP. Right. And from your perspective, you want to make sure that when I invoke that feature, the expected behavior is going to happen in all different types of scenarios. Right. So you're creating a test framework that goes through and does exactly that. Right. Implement this or, or execute this and see what happens. Does it adhere to what we expect it to do or not? Right. First, the developer has his own unit test. A lot of UI testing gets gets done done in there. Some basic functionality, right? Then the next level up is is a fu- you know, your functional testing groups, and they kind of do what you just described. I need to take this functionality and make sure that it works the way I think it should, and then it fails the way I think it should. And is it you know is it logging the right messages to the right log files and all that good kind of thing? You know all the things that all the specific functional things to that feature are they are they working correctly and are they uh, breaking correctly? Uh, both positive and, and negative test, testing, and and from there, you know, we need to go up and do integration testing. Okay, now I want to take this and I want to put it in an environment with other features in in play and see and see how it does. And then after that, there's a level of system testing where we try to emulate customer environments, and and you know, get all the moving pieces working together to make sure. Hey, you know, maybe functionally this thing is fine, but when it's, you know, put into water water to swim with these other fish, it doesn't work anymore. Something, you know, there's an adverse effect that, that we didn't see that, that'll break it. Um, so each, you know, each feature in a sense kind of goes through that food chain of unit functional integration, constant integration, system testing, and I'm sure there's layers I'm leaving out right now. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit, I, I want to go down in the weeds just a little bit, and then right. I, I want to come back up after okay. that, right? So first, a little bit down in the weeds. What type of technology are we talking about? Are you leveraging Jenkins? Are you leveraging like from a, a testing framework, from a testing uh, uh, tool chain? Right. So the continuing, continuous integration testings, the CITs that we do, are all managed via Jenkins. Um, and, and so it's becoming more and more important. We rely more and more on Jenkins. In the past, each QA group, essentially, we had our own hardware and our own lab you know, I used to I used to be in the lab wiring hardware together, and uh, you know, and bringing machines up and making sure they connected and everything. I haven't done that for years. Right now, they're in. We've got we've got multiple labs. We've got like a CTL lab and a Smokes lab, and the, what we call the Smokes lab is where is where Jenkins controls all the CITs, um, and it's it's Jenkins that that we use to to run every X number of hours to, for this continuous testing and error reporting and and tooling to back out changes and things and things like that. So. We still do some testing on our own hardware, but we are moving further away from that and further into shared environment using Jenkins. Um, from a test perspective, we have a lot of our own tooling and a lot of our own automation. Um, we get a boatload of Perl code here for starters, um, which we've written for many, many years, and you know both at the library level and the script level, and um, and we're going to continue to do that. We're also starting to focus more and more on Python. Um, it's more modern language. We're trying to evolve over over time, keep people interested. So we're in the middle of that transition, in a sense, to to modernize our automation. And it, in one sense, it's kind of a pain in the butt because you've got to deal with two different languages that don't always speak well together. But in the other sense, it gives us new opportunities to go re-engineer some things and make improvements on things we've done in the past. 
So you, you've gone through this process of going from an 18-month cycle to a six-month cycle, right? Continuous integration testing, right? Just on- ongoing every hour of every day. Right. So what are the results of this? Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I feel like, well, for starters, we test more in three hours right now than, than we did for a release back, you know, back in the day. <laughs> I mean, I've been here since 2001. So we did, you know, we didn't, what we did back then is so night and day different than what we did now. And, and as we've gone along, so it, one of the results is the the coverage we get and the frequency of coverage that we get is fantastic. Um, and the tooling that we're able to get, one of the, one of the coolest things about CITs running that, that often and, and running when you check things in. As a developer, if you check in something that's going to break a CIT, it gets backed out automatically. It never actually gets fully checked into the system unless you can get past the, the CITs. We auto, it's called bisect, and we auto-bisect the ch- changes right back out. Uh, that increases quality. It increases efficiency, too, because once upon a time, if you checked in, whether, whether you were in dev or QA, you checked in something that breaks, uh, you know, it might be a, a day later when somebody's test breaks, and then they've got to go figure out why um, and, and try to figure out what change broke their, broke their stuff and who knows how many things are changing. Right now, you know, it's all based on you check in, you get a change number. Um, these change numbers are ever increasing, so we can figure out, hey, we were good at this change number and we're bad at this change number. Look at the difference. Those are the change numbers that happen go in between. We go look at each one of those and start, you know, backing them right back out so we don't lose cycles for, you know, you checking in something that breaks my test. Uh, it just doesn't happen that much anymore, uh, especially at the library level. Right? I've worked a lot of, uh, on a lot of libraries in, in QA, and you have to be very careful. And you know, there have been times where you break a library and you break 500 tests. Um, you can't do that anymore. Yeah. So, uh, and from a customer perspective, right, these are tan- tangible differences, right, where not only are they getting, you know, the six-month cadence releases, but there's fewer bugs inside of those. They're more stable, right? So we're able to add features arguably faster, as you said, right, in that we're finding when there's an error much, 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 much faster. So there's a right. lot less wasted time. There's a lot less wasted time. Plus, there's more time for us to work on new features, you know. Once upon a time, when you would you would be in a test cycle, probably seven eighths of the te- seven out of eight of the tests that you run were regression tests, right? Make sure the old stuff still runs. Um, we have to do a lot less for regression nowadays uh, because it's done every three hours anyway. So in a sense, it frees us up to to do a better job of vetting new features and make sure that one they work and two they don't break anything that's already existing. Yeah. So I I want to take a moment to point out that I think this is a great example of. CI, CD processes are not just for, you know, web 3.0 applications or people who are deploying everything into Amazon or Azure, et cetera, right? It's it's absolutely valuable and valid when you're doing something like ONTAP, a literal right. operating system with a set of features on top of it and hardware. Right. You guys use blink tags? Like HTML? <laughs> oh, only for you, J- Justin. We, we, we put some in just to keep you relevant. I can make you an animated GIF if you want, or GIF. Oh man, that's a new can of worms there. We, we could we could bring in Mr. Atwell. He can create some memes for you. Oh, there you go, meme meme generator there. All right, so um, that's the QA side of it. I mean, did you want? Do we want to add anything to that? I mean, because 
I just want to shout out CIT and Smokes because Arrow owns that stuff. Right. And uh, and Dave just gave a great example of how that those processes have um, just improved and all the, the great work that they've been doing has definitely paid off. You know, I'd also point out a year, year and a half ago, there were maybe 60 CITs. Now there's hundreds. Over um, 300. Right. We're, we're looking at, at 300. So the amount of of users and and CITs and processes that the Aero team has to support has gone through the roof. And um, it's happening happening really well. Like, I, I feel like, in fact, I do need to add a, a new CIT soon. CITs can run for, a, for at most two hours. Um, so we, when you run out of space, you've got to create a new one. And so we've created a few new ones. And I'm at the point right now where I need to create another one. And I feel like I know how to do it. The processes are there. And, you know, the things that need to be done so that my CIT can just run, I don't have to worry about. And I'm confident that they'll get done because the Aero team is doing a great job of supporting all of us in QA and, and you know, making our job easier. Yeah, that's our charter. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good segue into the Aero team. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Aero team, what it is um, outside of what David just talked about and how you're continuously trying to evolve and become better at what you're doing as well as fitting into the new life cycles and and pipelines that are out there. Sure. So, yeah, David did a great job of covering um, the CIT and Smokes um, uh, subsection. So Arrow is actually broken up into roughly four different areas. We have the CIT and Smokes um, sub-team, and they support everything that you need for CIT and your smoke testing. We have the Nate and Knackle sub-team that um, David kind of brushed upon that also. So any any automated test scripts and library support that you need, those requirements come into that sub-team. Nate is NetApp test environment. It's a collection of libraries and tools that we use that everybody uses that test. NACL is NetApp Common Libraries. It's a set of Perl libraries and, and Python libraries now that um, that everybody uses. If you're talking to a controller and you're using a library, you're going to be using NACL. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> There's a huge effort to uh, incorporate Python, like David said earlier, um, into those scripts and libraries. Um, we have the CTL. Uh, he touched on that as well. That's the Common Test Lab. And the idea there is for us to share this amazing and expensive equipment and, and infrastructure that we have. So if you needed a test, uh, a test bed or test resources, we we like for it to be as easy and seamless as possible for you to get those resources. So you're telling me here at NetApp, not everyone gets their own personal uh, A700 cluster. Those days are long gone. We used to. Yeah. We're, we're, we're used not to. all evangelists like you, Justin. I don't get my own cluster. You know, there's a there's a plus and a minus to that too, though. In that. When I had all my own hardware, I was also, I basically had to be my own sysadmin. Yep. Um, there was a plus to that too. I actually used to be better with the hardware than I am now because I used to know what I know what I was doing. But at the same time, when I ran into things that I didn't know, I had to go figure them out. Now, it's it's all taken care of for me. I get a cluster with ONTAP loaded, and I can just go run my tests. Oh, CTL so awesome! So when you when you request when you request your test bed and you get it, it has everything configured for you. It's like a, a, a mini admin in there does all the work upfront work for you. Um, but I do I miss the days of uh, of going in there and, and doing ONTAP commands on my own. So I still do that. I still do that on purpose just for for kicks and grits like and DevOps, education. DevOps before it was DevOps. <laughs> like original DevOps sort of Dev, kind DevOps of. DevOps. Dev, 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 DevOps. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have a cool nickname like DevOps. We just did our job. <laughs> we were. We were DevOps. <laughs> <laughs> 
before it was just called automation. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, now it's out of your hands. And while it doesn't give you the skill set, it does free you up to do other things. It, it definitely improves your, uh, your test time. Um, config and setup time used to be a really, really big problem. And so uh, through things like CTL, we've been able to improve upon that tremendously. And then we have a general tooling team that supports a lot of the underlying tools that teams need to do just basic testing like IO tooling. Um, we are developing a whole suite of, of cloud tools or enhancing the tools that we have in order to be able to support cloud platforms. So we were talking a little bit about this earlier off off mic, I guess, uh, about how you guys are trying to think about moving to cloud and using the cloud as a uh, test bed. Um, could you walk us through what sort of thought process is going into that right now and where we stand today with that? Sure. So we have teams that have been testing on cloud for some time now. We have an ONTAP cloud QA organization. We have uh, projects like Fabric Pools that test um, having uh, object store in the cloud connected to maybe on-prem or separate storage controller devices. And so in order to support that, those teams have had to do some sort of workarounds for our existing automation and test infrastructure because in, in the NetApp automated test environment, we assume a lot of our um, our test resources are available locally within our intranet, within our engineering secure dome environment. So that pre that presents an interesting challenge for cloud testing. You know, how do we extend that concept of our our engineering dome into the cloud without violating any of, of the IT security and general principles? So this is a concerted effort between the cloud QA test teams, Aero, um, IT our engineering support environment, um, all of the networking folks, we all have to get together to figure out how do we enable cloud test teams to have the same CTL experience that FAS has or say Solifier has where they can push a button and get a test bed configured exactly how they need it and they can focus on their test execution. One of the things we're trying to do right now is figure out what we want to actually test in the cloud and what we don't need to test in the cloud because it's redundant, right? If it costs more to test in the cloud, if we can cover a lot of the regression and the overlaps um, outside of the cloud and test the core of what actually is different in the cloud, on the cloud, you know, from a cost perspective, it can save, save us. And we're just starting in our group trying to figure out how we're going to do that. That's a very interesting problem because um, with cloud, the cost is obvious, right? Like you can always check. Um, even if you weren't even at testing in NetApp, if you wanted to see how much cloud you were using, you could always go to your cloud provider and get a cost report. Well, we can, we can come up with numbers that, um, that represent how much we're spending, but can you do that for your internal testing on the equipment that you have? And that's actually the more challenging problem. But we are, within Aero, we are, um, we are trying to figure out how to make that easier for all the teams as well. So we want to get better at presenting estimates of how much your test will cost, whether it's in cloud or whether it's on-prem or whether it's with virtualized resources. So I want to make sure to point out that you're evaluating, right, and going forward with a cloud test framework or a framework for testing in the cloud, not solely because of cost or, or whether it's perceived or real, we don't know yet, but because we have, well, products that are deployed to the cloud. So it's kind of necessary. 
That is correct. Yeah. So because of all the new cloud solutions that we have, we have to do it. But we do want to consider how efficient it may be. Uh, the the, uh, the catalyst for this, of course, were the cloud solutions that we have. But then we started thinking, hey, could we save money? Are there tests that we run internally that we could benefit and save some, some costs by using cloud test bits instead? Just like we moved to vSIMs eventually away from our physical hardware, it's the same kind of evolution. It also frees up uh, resources here, right? So we talked a little bit about having to manage your own storage and that sort of thing, and that no longer happens because you have automation. Well, now you don't have to buy a bunch of stuff and have it sit there and not being used at any given time. Uh, you only pay for what you're using. So there is that sort of cost mentality there because you're, you know, you feel like you're getting value out of what you're owning as opposed to, you know, wow, we haven't used this group of clusters over here in a while. Maybe we should fire those up and, you know, start them up again. Um, so and it also frees up, you know, footprint space and that sort of thing, gives you easy access wherever you are. Uh, so there are a lot of benefits to moving those workloads to the cloud. And then again, there's also benefits to keeping them on-prem. You know, if there's things you don't want to or you don't feel comfortable having out in the cloud for security reasons or for proprietary reasons, or you just think that, you know, you're going to get better performance on-prem because you're able to control that environment more. I don't want to miss this point, though, um, and this is kind of a, a more subtle point. NetApp is really good about eating its own dog food or drinking its own champagne. So, <laughs> Choose your phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on your perspective. Eating your own chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> whatever you may like. But, uh, but it's good for us to use the solutions that we expect our customers to use. And we do that a lot, even in engineering. Like, we all use NetApp products and solutions. So it's just another way to prove out that the stuff we think works actually does. And you're referring to even before Customer Zero and Customer One come into play. Um, I'm kind of referencing Customer Zero and Customer One, right? Like, engineering is a huge customer of NetApp. So, um, so yeah, but, but to some extent, yeah. So... What else do we want to talk about? Well, I there, while David was talking about bisect, I did want to plug that we are we are trying to introduce machine learning into that whole workflow to see if we could get better about predicting when stuff like that will happen. Um, not just in the bisect context, but um, with all the data that we have collected internally. Um, to do some interesting and smarter things. And the, there's actually, um, we we kind of pitched that question out to the greater Aero community. Hey, what do you think would be interesting for us to do better with, with some machine learning? So in the context of using newer technology and evolving, um, we have projects in machine learning. We have projects uh, with containers. We talked about the cloud stuff. So Aero is kind of a cool team because we're constantly evaluating new technologies and how those could benefit the greater test community and NetApp overall eventually. Yeah, I know Nate and Knackle were some of our earliest cust uh, cust customers, I'm using air quotes, right, for uh, containers right, oh, yeah. and, and the team that I work with. So. Uh, Aside from that, I, that sounds an awful lot like how Skynet starts, right? Where we now have machine learning that's looking at code in order to determine when things are going to break, and the next step is it's fixing code for us, and suddenly we have sentience. I'm delighted that you made a Skynet reference. <laughs> so it's funny. Um, so she mentioned machine learning, and I perked up because, like, that's like we've talked about machine learning in several podcasts already, um, and that's kind of like the topic du jour. And every time we talk about machine learning, we either talk about Skynet or something being sentient. So we need to come up with better material. <laughs> it's getting old. <laughs> Not for you guys. You guys are loving it because you you never heard it. But I'm like, man, I've made this joke like six times. I need new stuff. Well, we've made it six times too, just not on a podcast. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't ever stop being funny either. No. Until they take over the world, then it's not funny. Then anymore. it's not funny. Would you prefer Max Headroom? 
I, I, you know, I, I like that reference, but no one else knows that reference. <laughs> you know, in my head, I had to, I, I had to do a last minute. Is it Max Headroom or Max Power? Max Power is Homer Simpson. <laughs> Max Power could be a combination of the two. Poochie? No, not no, the same. not Poochie. No. <laughs> anyway, all right. Um, so we talked a little bit about cloud and development. Um, let's talk about something that's really near and dear to Mecca's heart. Uh, San Interop. I knew that was coming. So, um, and I only bring this up because there is a an air of mystique around how San Interop and the in, in general how we build our Interop matrices out there. So, if you could just kind of give us the lowdown of how that all takes place uh, from inception to fruition. Uh, okay. Yes, I love it. So, uh, the context of this is fast San Interop and maybe a little bit of the switch interoperability. Um, the IMT is a large beast, and so it's good to set some context with that. Um, so um, SAN interoperability itself is just making sure anything you attach to an NetApp SAN works like we expect it to. Uh, the, the main focus of the testing there has to do with fault tolerance. And all of the host operating systems, all the clients you can attach have their own uh, requirements and, and uh, levels of resiliency for tolerance against um, the various types of faults that can be experienced in a NetApp uh, FASTSAN um, environment. And I, I'm being specific about FASTSAN because we have E-Series SAN and, and that has its own matrix instead of uh, supportability requirements. So um, so typically, uh, if you envision the storage stack starting from the host client and going all the way to our SCSI target running in ONTAP, um, any piece, any significant piece within that stack can change because there's a lot of third-party vendor-provided uh, components. So there are HBA firmware and uh, driver firmware and software. Um, there is the host operating system itself. There's switch firmware. There's the ONTAP release. So if any of those things change, that triggers a qualification event for the SAN Interop team. And so the, the team then evaluates what changed, what's the impact to the solution that we have currently supported on the matrix today. And if it's determined that it's minimal or it's insignificant, we do somewhat of a, of a paper qual. We say, hey, this is still supported. You guys are fine. But if we find that something significant changed, then that will trigger a whole full qualification event. And the, the SAN interoperability team will test that entire solution. Uh, we have a set of regression tests that uh, go back and make sure nothing's broken. And once the team is done, the results of that is actually new rows or updated rows. Uh, so whatever changed, that'll get updated on the existing row. And now you have more and new support. So in general, um, and I'm going to ask this because I see it get asked all the time. So if, if I've qualified, say, Windows 2012 for SAN, can I just safely assume that Windows 2012 R2 is also qualified? Have you heard of Microsoft Windows? <laughs> I've heard of them. Tell me more. <laughs> so um, the... Nothing against Microsoft, of course. Um, the the Windows versioning is not consistent in that 12 and 12R2 are significantly different. They have a different kernel with respect to the storage stack. So the answer to your question is absolutely not. Good. I'm glad we got that cleared up. So uh, a, a little bit of a details question. Right? When, when we're talking about this matrix, 
How big is this? Right? When, when you have to go through a requalification, there's, I, I can only assume, hundreds if not thousands of different permutations that need to be tested and validated. So the biggest trigger event, of course, is going to be an ONTAP release. Because when ONTAP revs, revs, you have to test everything that you had previously against those ONTAPs. The good news about that is that that's the largest um, event, and we can get in front of that very quickly because we're here with them. So we get bits early. We start testing that stuff way early and make sure we try to get zero-day currency on on any ONTAP release. Um, and that's only for a major release. Before Cadence, it was, you know, the dot releases were kind of for free. Um, but if uh, the other components are way more limited. So um, the uh, driver software and firmware for most of the HBAs don't rev outside of the, um, the host operating systems except for in the Windows case. So those qualifications are limited to the supported Windows configurations. Um, you know, near and dear to my heart, ONTAP DSM and the Windows Unified Host Utilities, those trigger events come out of Interop, actually. So that's kind of easy. And plus, that's here at NetApp as well. So we don't we don't have to do – we can fold those into other qualifications. Um, so usually the other third-party trigger events are limited to a particular host platform. So does, uh, you know, Windows going to a six-month update cadence, does the, the Linuxes going to – usually six months-ish, does that complicate the work that's going on there or, or at least make it more frantic? More interesting, yeah. Um, so we have close relationships with all of those vendors and um, we evaluate very closely what's changing. So the six-month cadence isn't as scary as it sounds for a lot of the host platforms because what they're changing doesn't um, influence the storage stack in ways that worry us. So we've got our arms around the six-month cadence on the OS vendors pretty well. It's almost like having close partnerships has <laughs> has a purpose. Sounds good to me. Yep. Partners are great. So, so it's funny, actually, the first time I ever, I, I wouldn't say met because we didn't actually meet, it was over email, was due to an interop SAN question when I was in support. So Mecca helped me on that problem. She was very helpful. I was surprised. I thought that these developers were going to be mean to me because I was a lowly support guy. But I'm a little surprised too. Leave <laughs> <laughs> me alone. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just trying to develop over here. <laughs> well, there you have it. Uh, some QA and development talk. Uh, we are trying to help our customers and everyone else listening understand how NetApp does things so that maybe you can get some ideas of how you can do things uh, if you're trying to struggle if you're struggling with the same challenges that are everyone's struggling with you know how to get to cloud uh, how to interact with your QA and developers and increase your cadence uh, so that you get faster more agile releases that are also high in quality I might add uh, so Mecca and David thanks so much for joining us today Mecca again if we want to reach you how do we do that I am Mecca, M-E-K-K-A Williams on LinkedIn. And David? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. It's David Presley. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at David Presley 14 It's two S's, not like the Elvis, right? Two S's. All right, that's good. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Mecca Williams and David Presley for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Did you die any Easter eggs? Mm, not yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, my wife did buy, like, a, an absurd amount of eggs at the grocery store, as usual. <laughs> Do you like omelets? I'm going to have to. 
omelets that are tinged with a little bit of blue ink. Is it just me that's getting Oh, look, it's a Smurf omelet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm, Smurfy. Egg salad for days. Yeah, days and days and days. What's funny is we're going to have all these eggs, and my son's going to want to maybe color three of them. And then his attention span is gone. Well, he's three? No, he's five. No. He just has the attention span of a three-year-old. <laughs> like father, like son? What? Squirrel! <laughs>